Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I welcome Dr Kate Grundy to the podcast to discuss end-of-life care and symptom management. We are going to talk generally today and then more specifically about the COVID-19 dying patient. Kate is a palliative care physician working at Canterbury District Health Board, where she is the clinical director of palliative care. She is also a clinical lecturer at Christchurch School of Medicine and is on the Mortality Review Committee. Kate has a number of research interests, which include cancer pain, hospital-based palliative care services, and intraspinal analgesia for cancer pain. Kia ora, Kate, and welcome. Good afternoon. So, Kate, we're discussing Tiara Whakapiri, the unifying path, principles and guidance in the last days of life. I wonder if you can tell us about the background to this document and why it is so important. Yes, uh, Tiara Whakapiri came out of a commitment across New Zealand to develop something to replace the Liverpool Care Pathway for the Dying. The Liverpool Care Pathway was um, developed in the UK, in Liverpool specifically, and became a very highly regarded best practice guidance for looking after people in their last hours and days. And it encompassed the principles that had been developed in hospice practice to make them available to all practitioners in a kind of accessible way. And it followed up what they what was referred to as a pathway. Uh, I mean, we've got pathways in a whole bunch of other things, you know, fractured neck femur, et cetera, and um, dying was um, n- no different. The problem was that in the UK, it, it came across some problems. And this was, uh, I won't go into details, this is not really important, but it wasn't, it wasn't the content of the pathways itself. It was around how it was perceived and how it had, it seemed to have started becoming incentivized, which worried people that um, health services were paid more if they put more people on the pathway. And that just got people worried and there was an inquiry. And in the end, the inquiry decided that it was best that the pathway was withdrawn, not that there were any actual problems with the pathway content itself. And at that point, New Zealand had adopted its own version of the Liverpool Care Pathway and was, it was being used extremely successfully across Aotearoa. So we were pretty sad when it went. And at the time, I was chair of the Palliative Care uh, Council of New Zealand, and the decision was made that we would make the most of this unfortunate development and develop something that had the feel of New Zealand rather than adopting a UK program. So we took all the best of the best and we Kiwiized it and uh, we went through a very rigorous process of gaining an understanding of what was right in the New Zealand context. And so we developed uh, Te Arafakapiri. Okay, wonderful. So I understand it has a holistic approach and is based on Te Whare Tapa Whaa. So Again, putting it in New Zealand context, why is this so important? And is it important yeah. for everyone? Indeed. I mean, I mean, that was really became, it, very early on in our deliberations, it became clear that Tefari Takafa was going to be perfect for the framework for this, um, for this program. And 
because of the fact that it identifies very precisely that it's not just about physical issues, it's about emotional, it's about spiritual, and it's about fano. So it's a and unless you explicitly explore and address the issues in each of those uh, four areas, you won't be able to provide good end of life care. So everything we developed within the program reflected back uh, to to Fari Tapafa, and uh, it was the other part of it was that we wanted to look at it not just from the patient's point of view, but from their Afano, from the healthcare professionals providing the care, and also uh, how individual services needed to uh, change and adapt and develop processes in order to allow good end of life care to happen in this way. So, so there, there was kind of the the, the elements uh, that came out of Tefari Tapafa, but also uh, looking as broadly as possible as to how we would. Uh, maximize the chances of each individual patient having the best possible end of life care that they could, that they could have. So Kate, there are often five main symptoms that people require attention for as they die, um, including things like pain, agitation, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, dyspnea, uh, and respiratory tract secretions. So within the document, there's a number of anticipatory flow charts and also some care plans. So tell us about why these are so important. Okay, I might just go back a step because the very, the most important thing about any program or pathway around um, dying is the identification of the dying process itself. And um, in health, we are particularly in hospitals, but all throughout our health system, we're very used to seeing critically unwell people and treating them and making them better. And obviously, people with chronic incurable conditions, they're not going to become better as incured, but they will uh, improve from that acute episode. And the hard thing is to recognize when this is a situation where they're not going to be able to recover. And there are a number of elements about that, one of which is the, the, the medical reality, but sometimes the, the, the patient's wishes and preferences might guide us towards uh, identifying that someone is dying before we've uh, embarked on uh, life-prolonging treatment because that is their wish. And I mean, the converse is true that some people uh, really want us to try anything, even if we don't believe that there's a high chance of it working. But one of the things that I try and teach when I'm teaching medical students or other um, health professionals is how important it is to have that little voice in our mind which says, could they actually be dying? Because if they are, then the treatments that we try and put in place to stop that from happening are really not going to work. And they're going to add to the burden that the patient is suffering from. And I often think that a lot of the problems we see at the end of life are because we've, we're still trying when actually the body is in the process of dying. So I think being um, open in our own minds to the fact that this might be happening, being prepared to talk about it. So for some people, that, that idea of uh, hoping for the best but preparing for the worst is really important. So sowing that seed that that's what might be happening 
because sometimes then the reality hits home and people say, we're actually okay for these things to stop now. We're ready for this to happen. So there's a lot of um, elements that go into making that decision about dying. But the very first thing is that it has to be there in our mind as a possibility when we're looking after people with serious um, advanced illness. Because the sooner we do that, the longer we have to listen to the preferences and to put in place the things that are important. And I'll come back to it because obviously symptom management is absolutely key, but we need to think about the other things as well. And in hospital, one of the most important things is if the person is going to die, is hospital okay for them? Is that somewhere where they want to die or would they rather be at home or in a hospice or or some other place where they would rather be than in a hospital? Or if they are in a hospital, can we make sure it's a a quiet, private, dignified space for them to be in rather than in a, in, in a, a large um, multi-bedded area, for example. So privacy, um, it allows us to prioritise that and to make sure that the people that they want to see are actually alerted and can come and see them. So uh, assuming that we've thought about all of those things that we've, um, and sometimes, of course, we're wrong and we think the person is going to die, but they miraculously come back and, and spring back from that. And, um, you know, that's, it's inevitable that's going to happen. If you only dared say that someone was dying within an inch of their life, then you would have no, no opportunity to put all of these things in place. Um, the other thing that's really important when you uh, know that someone is is dying, particularly if they've been having a strong, aggressive, active treatment, is that you can then focus on some of the physical issues that they might have. You know, mouth cares and and skin cares and and bowel cares. Very deliberately, you might no longer be doing this bunch of things like antibiotics and IV infusions and stuff, but you're doing a whole bunch of other things in their place. Um, so that allows you to do that. And the same goes for medicines. So we're no longer giving treatment doses of medicines or resuscitative type treatments, but we are giving symptom relieving treatments. Now, of course, it's absolutely proper and right that we should be giving symptom relieving medicines at the, at the same time as our treatment initiatives as well but it's certainly often a whole lot easier to palliate symptoms when you're just doing that and I hear often from particularly nursing colleagues but sometimes junior doctors too that trying to palliate symptoms and treat someone as dying as well as giving three doses of IV antibiotics a day and this and that treatment and sending them down for x-rays is so hard because not only are you giving mixed messages to the patient in the whānau, but it's actually really hard to do good end-of-life care when you're doing, doing all that active stuff as well. So again, making a really clear and compassionate and patient-centred decision around what we think is happening, which is that the person is in the last time of their life, makes um, attention to the symptoms and the other issues much easier. So moving on to discussing those five main symptoms, we decided that sometimes patients um, come to their dying phase with relatively low burden of symptoms predating that. 
So they might be on a little bit of morphine or they might be on um, an, an anti-sickness medications, but they're not on complex doses or high doses or multiple doses. That's the majority of people are not, you know, in specialist palliative care, we see people with complex symptoms, but generally speaking in um, home-based care or in age residential care or in some of the hospital wards, you know, things are not that complicated. So when you move into end-of-life care, it's important that we have some way of supporting non-specialist staff to provide expert symptom management in the last days of life. So those six flowcharts, not five, five symptoms, but six flowcharts, there are two flowcharts for pain. And the main reason is because morphine is our gold standard for pain, but uh, we tend not to recommend giving it in uh, serious or advanced renal disease where you can't metabolize the morphine so well. So we have one for patients with um, renal impairments, significant renal impairment, and one for you know, normal or assumed normal. We don't suggest that everybody has a creatinine check just when you make a diagnosis of dying. But if you've got no reason to believe that it's significantly impaired, then you can assume that they um, are okay to have morphine at the end of life. So those six flowcharts are uh, designed for what we call normal dying. So they are, as exactly as you said, anticipatory prescribing. So having medications ready and on hand so that they are there are med medications in the house or in the facility or, or, or on hand, and they are prescribed in the drug chart so that they can be given for the indication that is specified. And morphine, therefore, may be prescribed for pain or for dyspnea, because we know it's a very good drug for dyspnea. Haloperidol may be prescribed for or nausea because it's actually an extremely good antiemetic. Sometimes we give it for agitated delirium, although that's um, less used now than it maybe was. But it, that's a second indication that it may be used for. Uh, midazolam, you know, again, might be used for a crisis situation, such as something that might happen very suddenly if the person is has a risk of bleeding, for example, or it may be used more routinely as a a way of calming the person and maybe uh, gently sedating the person as well. So, but they, the flow charts are designed to be used for people who are not ordinarily on a significant, you know, amount of, of palliative medication. So they're a really good place to start. And we recommend that they are, the flow charts are kept handy um, in an aged care facility, for example, that the drug room would have access to those. And maybe uh, the GPs might know that they're there and be able to quickly go to them um, just to remind them that, um, that they've got the right uh, mix of medications available. Great. Thank you for clarifying that for us. So I wonder if we could talk perhaps about breathlessness for a moment and if you could talk us through how we would use these flowcharts and care plans to address breathlessness. Yeah. The other thing um, that we have done in the South Island is to provide some um, holistic guidance for symptoms. And the reason I mention this with dyspnea is that 
medications are are only part of what we've got to offer here. And that's actually the same for all of them. There are there are lots of tips and tricks that are actually really useful for symptoms at the end of life. And um, dyspnea is one of them. And the problem with dyspnea at the end of life is it may be part of the normal dying process if someone is uh, has chainsaw respiration. They may have a, quite a distressing respiratory pattern that people find quite upsetting, particularly families. And actually, no treatment can eliminate that. And the and sometimes when people are breathing very fast, the reason they're breathing fast is that their body's driving them to do that. And the only way they're going to stop breathing is when they breathing slows and then they die. So managing breathlessness is sometimes more challenging than managing other symptoms. But the main thrust of treatment is to reduce the fear and the panic that goes with that. And the best drug for that is morphine, not actually other opioids so much, but the evidence is with morphine. And it's actually quite good at reducing the dyspnea, that that sensation of breathlessness. But sometimes people are very breathless and and actually introducing some sedation is what's needed too, which is... So I think that the, the pathway outlines that opioids are generally the first option, but that um, midazolam is there as well as uh, either a PRN or in maybe in a syringe driver. And that being uh, alert to the support and reassurance that you need as well is, is actually really important. So it basically just talks you through those, uh, those options there and gives some advice regarding doses as well. Yes, I, I do agree with you. And often it's the family you're treating rather than the patient, isn't it, when it comes to that particular symptom. So thank and that you. goes as well for the excessive respiratory secretions mm. um, that's sometimes referred to as the death rattle. There is some kind of probably some insights really about that. The death rattle itself really is what occurs when the person is unconscious or semi-conscious. So They've lost that, the reflex at the back of the throat is no longer recognizing. You know, if you get even a little tiny crumb stuck in the back of your throat, you'll cough and want to get rid of it. If it's literally, if the fluid is literally sitting around there and moving around, making that kind of gurgling or snoring noise in the back of the throat, it's because the person can't feel it because they're not trying to get rid of it. So um, that's a nice thing to be able to tell people is the reason it's there. I mean, every now and again, they might cough, but the majority of the time, they're actually unaware of it. And that's because of their conscious level. So it's a little bit like people snoring when they're asleep. It bothers the partner, but it doesn't really bother them. And um, the other thing that we need to be aware of is the treatments used for, or traditionally used for these excessive secretions, these gurgly back of the throat secretions, are anticholinergic agents. And sometimes patients are actually very dry and have a very dry mouth already. So we have to be aware of the fact that the medications can make us feel better because we give them and we tell the family that we're giving this medicine. But we have to be really sure that we're not making things worse. So you need to have a really be really aware of the other downsides of giving um, a drug like hyacinth butyl bromide, uh, which is buscopan, because um, even a few doses in a row will make 
a mouth dry. And sometimes the swallowing um, can be really worsened by an excessively dry mouth. So we don't want to be using it too early. And once the person is unconscious, we probably don't need it at all. So that's where, again, the nursing maneuvers, the changing position, the just understanding what's going on, the reassurance that comes with um, with what we can provide for for Fano is really is really really important, and letting them know what is actually going on and why it's happening. So not to jump into the buscapan too early. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. So what else can we expect from this document? What else is contained in it? Yeah. So there are some other flowcharts. One is um, a flowchart that's called, um, it's about diagnosing dying or recognizing the, the, the dying process. And that will just give you some pointers. I find it quite good as a, um, to help with teaching. So, you know, if you're doing a, a bit of a teaching session on, or you're talking to a GP resident or something like that about the things that you could get up a flowchart and go through it together and talk about some of those things that you see. And, and again, it just reminds us of the things to look out for when we're trying to recognize dying. There's also one called medical management, and that's really providing some evidence behind some of things like anticipatory prescribing, because for some doctors, it's quite a hard thing to prescribe for a symptom that hasn't actually happened yet. But if you think about it, the reason that it needs to be there is that you can't wait eight hours to treat an acute symptom when the person only has hours to live. And so it's important to recognize the possibility that it might happen, to chart an appropriate dose for the patient, and to put some loose guidelines around that. You don't want to be too, too prescriptive and say that the morphine can only be given for pain when then the patient develops dyspnea and the nurse wants to give them morphine, but it absolutely says that it can only be given for pain. So we have to be a little bit careful about how we, how we do that. But if the organisation you're working in or um, and, and there are some places in New Zealand that are starting to use Tiarafakapiri in people's homes, um, you know, you can just reassure people about the kinds of things that uh, that, that, that medication might be useful for. So there's the, the medical management one, there's the diagnosing dying or recognizing dying flowchart, there's the medical management flowchart, and then there's what we call the baseline assessment. Now, I alluded a little earlier to the fact that South Island has developed some updated resources, which includes these holistic recommendations for each of the symptoms. South Island has also updated the baseline assessment. It was four pages long and was uh, quite detailed and tended in my experience to not be completed very well and um, so we have simplified it and it is now a two-page document and I know that a number of places in the North Island are using it we're about to get it uploaded onto the South Island Alliance website so people can use it if they wish to but I'm happy for people to contact me directly if they would like a copy of our South Island resources so, so the ministry toolkit is still fine and it's still used in lots of places but we have updated it. Uh, but one thing we haven't needed to update is the ongoing care of the dying person, uh, which is a little bit like if you remember back to working in hospitals and observation charts where you had pulse and blood pressure and temperature and things on those. We developed this chart 
as a replacement for that. Because what happened when people were dying is that you stop filling in knobs chart, but you don't stop observing things and needing to observe things and needing to record things. So we thought, well, we get rid of one. Let's write another one that actually is all about the things that we are monitoring and checking for. And they, funnily enough, absolutely sit under Tifari Tapafar. So there's four sections. There's the physical, the emotional, mental, the spiritual, and the family, the whānau section. So it's split very much into four sections, and each one has a bunch of questions that the nurse is able to, generally the nurse is able to, check against and record. And they will note whether they're that symptom is either absent or well under control, whether there has had to be some kind of intervention, but things are still fine, or whether there is a problem and it needs to be escalated. So we've called it the ACE chart. That's how we know it as the ACE chart. A is achieved, C is under control, and E is escalate. So by using those little um, codes, as it were, we can uh, communicate um, from one shift to the next or, or, or one nurse to the next if you're in someone's home and um, district nurses are visiting regularly. So that chart we haven't needed to change at all. It was, it was excellent when it was written and it's still working really, really well. So those are the other, and they're, you can imagine the flow charts are generic. They're just, they're, they're not for a specific person. They're a, a guidance. Whereas those two, the baseline assessment and then the ongoing care are for an individual patient. And there is a version for in, hosp- in a hospital setting or an inpatient setting of some sort. And there's also a version for at home using lay language so that it can be left with family to fill in and they can read those questions and not be bamboozled by their medical terminology. So that's those. And then there's also some patient or whānau information sheets, one uh, around the uh, explaining the dying process and another one called dying at home, which is uh, for families just to give them some something written down that they can refer to once their loved one has died about the things that they might need to do. So, yeah, there's quite a lot in the Te Ara Whakapiri um, toolkit um, as well as the actual guidance that sits behind that which is all the um, the evidence um, behind that and and all of those all of those are available on the ministry website wonderful thank you Kate we're in the middle or amidst a global pandemic in New Zealand at the moment and as of this weekend in Auckland we have patients that we are managing in the community so do you have some advice for us And with managing a COVID patient, obviously there's more complexity, but I'm imagining the principles remain the same. You're quite right, Louise. The principles are the same. I'll just take a slight step back a minute because there are are a number of things that I think we need to be thinking of. One is the fact that for some patients who develop COVID, it may be clear as part of an advanced care planning process that they wouldn't, they may have a chronic illness, a severe chronic illness, and they maybe wouldn't want to be treated aggressively, um, certainly wouldn't want ICU and intubation. And 
ideally having some kind of openness to having conversations, particularly with that group of patients. So if there is a patient that you know you're looking after and they're pretty housebound or their level of functioning is quite low, maybe they've got nasty heart failure or end-stage diabetes or kidney failure or something like that, and they were to get COVID, then I think it's entirely reasonable to say, look, we can just look after you and care for you and give you the best care possible without you having to go into hospital and being separated, potentially separated from your family. Now, there's obviously going to be issues to do with isolation and whatever in there, where they are. The other thing, of course, is that they may not die. So just because you're not big, I mean, it doesn't have a, it's, treatment is supportive anyway. So, um, and we know that from the Rosewood cluster back a year and a bit ago here in Christchurch is that some of those patients did get COVID, but, and they were all treated um, symptomatically. There were none of them treated aggressively and some of them survived. But what we know is that when people start to get really sick from COVID um, symptomatically, they can get sick very quickly. So their breathlessness can get sick very quickly. So it really emphasizes the need for anticipatory prescribing. I don't think you need mega doses, but you just need to get onto it. You can't leave it till tomorrow after you've done your clinic. By then they could have been in distress for a very long time. So I think that the the key is be aware that that just because someone is palliative doesn't necessarily mean they're going to die. But if somebody is going clearly going to die and their their symptoms are escalating, you need to get onto it pretty quick. And you're using exactly the same drugs. You know, there's no there isn't a different set of drugs that you would use. It's the same the same things. Absolutely, great points. Thank you. And it is reassuring and actually makes me think that we need to have some of these conversations in advance as the numbers are racking up, particularly in Auckland. And we're not good at advanced care planning, we know that. But while we've got the time, perhaps it's the time to have these conversations and make sure that the patient's wishes and the family's wishes are well documented. I agree with you. And um, they're really hard conversations to have in the heat of the moment. When someone is sick and scared, is not the time to be having an advanced care planning conversation. And if the patient is known to you, um, you can just raise it in, in an exploratory fashion and say, well, hope, hopefully this will not ever happen. But, um, and I know that we hear stories from other countries where uh, COVID has been a big issue. And we know that particularly many elderly patients actually very much chose not to have, you know, not to have aggressive treatment. And some of it was around the risk of being separated and being isolated and and hearing about what treatment was like. They just wanted to be. And if they know that you're there for them and you can give them symptom management, then um, and cross your fingers and hope that they that they pull through. Then um, and if they're vaccinated, you know, there's they're much more likely to to pull through. So, um, you know, that that is a a positive conversation to have in advance with patients. The other thing is that we know that the biggest barrier sometimes to um, having a palliative approach is lack of preparedness of the family. So the patient themselves knows what's going on, but the family are not there or not, not on that page yet. So implore us or encourage us to give treatment, which is either unwanted by the patient or actually unwarranted in the sense that it's unlikely to 
to have a meaningful um, benefit to the patient. But we're kind of left with no choice because there hasn't been any good preparation beforehand. No, those are great points. And actually feeling amongst the community now that people can be managed at home, you can again, the anxiety of the GPs go up, but the sense of uh, peace of people being at home amongst their family and with their pets, you can just feel that as well. So but that's um, right. It, it yeah. actually gives you a sense of control. I oh, know it, yeah. it it adds it adds a, a level of of uncertainty and, and nervousness, but but it does it does allow you to to exert some some control over what happens to people. It's and I, I hope there's never a situation where hospitals tell you not to send a certain groups of patients in and of course the busier hospitals get the more likely I suppose that might happen to some degree but that's even more reason not to admit people who really don't want to be there because ultimately that potentially leads to the resources being given in the wrong given to the you know in the wrong places to the wrong people and uh it's it's about doing the right things to the right people, isn't it? And you, we, we've always got such a lot to offer all of our patients, even if they're not receiving full-blown hospital-based treatment. There's still um, a lot that we can and, uh, and will be doing for those patients. Well, thank you for the insights today. It's fantastic and reassuring and wonderful to have a fantastic guidance in the document. So thank you for your work uh, on no problem. That. So just to conclude our podcast today, Kate, some take-home messages for our listeners, please. Oh, okay. I think the take-home messages probably will be, the first one is be alert to the fact that your patients are all going to die, every single one of them at some point. And if you um, raise it and work with that and have it out in the open, it allows you to do some really good planning and preparation uh, for that. Um, so to be alert and to think about it and be comfortable in talking about it. Sometimes it requires us to use the dying word, the D word. And once it's out, it makes conversation so much easier. The second is that if you are going to use Tiarafakapiri and use the baseline assessment, sometimes it's been a bit criticised as being, oh, it's a bit of a tick box exercise. I think you need to reframe that, <laughs> those people are doing that because tick boxes are, the other way of looking at it is actually it's a checklist. You know, you don't look after dying patients all the time. And if you forget critical elements of it, you can't go back the next day once they've died and do the spiritual assessment that you forgot to do yesterday. So it's really important to have something that you can just quickly scan through and make sure that you've remembered all the things that are important. And that's certainly a really important part of it in hospital medicine where junior doctors are busy and they find it really super useful just to go through and just to reassure themselves that they've remembered everything. So think of it as being like a checklist and an important checklist for something that you really don't want to miss out uh, on um, elements of. Another take-home message. I think we, we do have only one chance to get it right uh, or generally speaking, only one chance to get it right. And uh, so to go in there prepared and, and open-hearted with compassion and, um, yeah, I think that there's, I mean, you can tell, I mean, end-of-life care and palliative care is absolutely my passion. And, um, and sometimes it's our 
it's a lack of familiarity that pushes us away. And so I would really encourage people to use Tiarafakapiri to make them feel more confident um, so that they can um, uh, journey with patients and, uh, and family uh, with more confidence. Well, thank you for your time today, Kate. It's been a pleasure and I can feel your passion coming through at me. Um, if you're a New Zealand GP, you can claim CPD points and the um, resources that we've used today will be on our website. So please access those in anticipation. Thank you, Kate. No problem. Kia ora.